Greetings to everyone. Last time we saw that Malachi is primarily an indictment of the ministry, that the ministry has not done the job of preparing a people for God, not even a tithe of them. And then toward the end it shows that those who paid attention of the people, God heard. I'm now in Malachi 3, verse 16. And that he would use them to make up his jewels. Then we see that there's a terrible time of tribulation coming. And the day comes it shall burn as an oven, and all the proud and all the wicked shall be stubble. So the great tribulation is talked about here. And then it talks about the return of Christ. But there are two footnotes then, because in time sequence it goes to Christ returning and the righteous treading the wicked as ashes under their feet. And that's the end of the story in that sense. But there are two footnotes at the end. Right at the end of the Minor Prophets, the last book of these prophets, which showed the whole history of the church and ultimately the whole history of Israel laid out before us, one in a spiritual fulfillment, the other in a physical fulfillment, as we've covered many times in this series. But the two footnotes at the very end begin in Malachi 4.4. Remember you the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded to him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. So there's one thought. And the other thought is, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So we are told that we must remember the law and the prophets. Basically here, Moses and the laws that he gave, along with the statutes and judgments. Now this is an end time book written to the end-time church, and it tells us to remember Moses. And it also says that we will deal with the prophet Elijah as well. So these are two uh, additions to, or additional thoughts, added to the back of the book of Malachi for us to have particular emphasis on, because he's already finished the story in that sense by saying Christ will come and we will tread the uh, wicked, but he wants to leave these two thoughts in mind. And we're going to find that there's a very, very important reason for that. Now much has been written and said about Elijah, particularly in light of Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6. Uh, questions come up. Was John the Baptist the final Elijah, or is there another to come? Was Herbert W. Armstrong that one to come? Many in the church today believe Herbert Armstrong was the Elijah to come. Is this a correct analysis, or is it not? What does it mean to turn the hearts, in verse 6, of the fathers to the children and the children to their fathers? Because if this is not done, God will come and smite the earth with a final curse. So we will examine scriptures which mention Elijah to get the full story and seek to make some sense of these last verses of Malachi. Now first, is there really to be an Elijah at the end? Now let's consider some internal evidence. The book of Malachi is set just prior to the day of the Lord. You go through here, and it becomes very obvious. It's an end-time prophecy. 
We covered that in the Sermon on Malachi, and we've seen that the whole Minor Prophet series is an end-time prophecy. The setting of Joel is the day of the Lord, so these books are talking about the time just before the tribulation, the day of the Lord, and the return of Jesus Christ. So if that's what Malachi is talking about, does that leave any room for John the Baptist to be the final and only Elijah? Even though some have thought that. So he's talking here about Elijah the prophet just before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And the context leading up to this was the tribulation and the return of Jesus Christ. So it's not talking about his first coming here. It's talking about his second coming. And in this context, it mentions an Elijah to come. So the internal evidence of the book of Malachi and the time sequence and setting of it would lead us to believe that this Elijah must come right here at the end, not just having come as John the Baptist. Now, the lest I come is another uh, thought, the very last sentence in Malachi 4.6. Lest I come and smite with a curse. You see, that was not the purpose of his first coming. But he will come the second time in judgment, and there will be a great curse, and all kinds of curses pronounced upon the inhabitants of the world. So, the context here specifically of this Elijah is of him smiting the earth with a curse when he comes. And we know as a matter of history at this point that he did not come and smite the earth with a curse at that time. It wasn't his job at all. He came as a lamb. He will come as a lion. Now what about John the Baptist being Elijah? We've already seen the internal evidence of Malachi, but let's go on and see if John the Baptist fulfilled Malachi 4 from another standpoint. And to do that, I want to go to Luke 1, Luke 1, and uh, I think we'll start in about verse 17, Luke 1, a long chapter, I'm going to go back here some more. Alright, now he's talking here, at the beginning of Luke, about the birth of both Christ and of uh, John the Baptist through Elizabeth. Um, I guess he doesn't mention Christ specifically here in Mary. That account is more in Matthew. But here he's talking about John the Baptist and, and Zacharias, his father. Uh, verse 13, The angel said to him, Fear not, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you shall have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Eternal and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. Now that gives you a clue about what turning the hearts means. It's not just physical fathers to physical children, or uh, helping the family situation, but in a larger sense it's talking about the children of Israel being turned to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now this was what was laid out for John the Baptist to do. 
He's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, and it includes here the part about turning the hearts of the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, which we saw in Malachi 4. Now let's go to Matthew 11, because it is inescapable that John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. No question about that. The scriptures make that very plain. The only question is, was he the only and the last? Now let's pick it up in Matthew 11, uh, in verse 7. And as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What went you out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? Now this man, as we just read, was going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He wasn't going to come as a reed shaken in the wind. He would re- would have a message, a very powerful message of repentance and the forgiveness of sin and baptism. Um, now where was I? But what went you out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? And behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Here was a man of the wilderness living out in the wilds. They have had leather clothing and ate locusts. Uh, a man of the wilderness. But what we went you out for to see? A prophet? Yes. I say to you, and more than a prophet. Not just a prophet, but more than that. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare your way before you. So not only was he a prophet, but he had a specific job of preparing the way for Jesus Christ to come. Truly I say to you, Among them that are born of women, there is not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So even though John the Baptist um, stood hands and head above all of us, anyone who is in the kingdom of God is going to be greater than any human being who walked the face of this earth, with the exception of Christ, and he's greater now by far than he was when he walked the earth. So there's no doubt here that John was a fulfillment of Malachi 3 and 4, 4 through 6. Even though he himself said that he was not Elijah when asked in John 1, 21. He did not think that was his job. But his father had said so in Luke 1, and Christ confirms it here. So, was it the only and final fulfillment? Let's go to Matthew 17 now. Matthew 17, and begin in about verse 10. Matthew 17. Now they had been up on the mountain in the transfiguration here. Um, Verse 10. And his disciples asked him, saying, well, wait a minute, verse 9. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias or Elijah must first come? And Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done to him whatsoever they listed or pleased. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist, that Elijah was a John the Baptist. Now, notice verse 11, because this is the part in verse 11 and verse 12 where people have questioned. 
Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly shall first come. Now what's he talking about here? He's talking about the transfiguration. He's talking about when he is here on this earth with Moses and Elijah. And because they were glorified, the disciples seeing this thought it was time for the Feast of Tabernacles. Why? Because they saw Moses and Elijah there. So they figured that it must the resurrection must have occurred and therefore Moses and Elijah had been resurrected and were with Christ. So they pictured the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, which pictures the millennium right after Christ returns. But Christ had said, in this context, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. Now that is prophecy. Verse 12 is history. But I say to you that Elijah is come already. In other words, there's more than one fulfillment here. He said, Elijah shall truly first come. Now when he said this, Elijah, uh, John the Baptist had already come. He had already prepared the way for Christ. Christ was here preaching well into his ministry at the time he said this. So he said, Elias truly shall first come. That's future. And then he said, he's come already in the form of John the Baptist. That's history. It had already happened. So Christ is talking about two different things here. He's saying, yes, you're right. Uh, Elijah will come, and he will prepare the way before I return. But there's already been an Elijah here. Check the context. The transfiguration is the key. They were coming off the mountain from that emotional experience, and we're talking about it. And the transfiguration is clearly set in the time after Christ's second coming, Moses and Elijah being there. So the whole context here in Matthew 17 is of future events, not of what had just happened with John. Now Christ wished to make an additional point here, is the reason he made this um, statement about prophecy and history in two succeeding verses. He made it clear that when a man such as John the Baptist had come to prepare the way for his first coming, he was not recognized and was rejected. They knew him not, did what they wished with him, and ultimately even cut his head off. Now that is going to happen again. When this end-time Elijah comes, people will do the same thing with him they did with John the Baptist. They will not recognize him, they will reject him, they will not know him, and ultimately, he will be killed as well, I think we're going to see before we're done with uh, this talk about Elijah. So the implication here, he wanted them to get, and certainly wanted it recorded for us, that Elijah was a man of like passion as we are, as James mentions there in James 5.17. He stopped the rain for three and a half years, but in the context of healing... He said, here was a man who had the kind of faith whereby a resurrection even occurred, uh, and yet he was a man of like passions as we are. So the Elijah to come is going to be, in that sense, like John the Baptist. He is uh, not going to be the kind of person, perhaps, that we would all recognize and say, oh, this must be the one that's preparing the way for Christ. He won't come in that fashion, and he will not be recognized by most, and he will be rejected by most. So there's a lesson here for us. 
So the context here and in Malachi both indicate a second coming time frame. So if there's a little room for confusion in the wording Christ uses to describe John's fulfillment, the context of both Malachi and Matthew 17 should clear that up. I don't see much room for that confusion anyway. It seems very clear that 11 and 12 are talking about one man who's already been here and one man who is yet to come. If you need Bible precedent for type occurring over and over, um, this is a very similar example as that of Peter claiming the miracles of Acts 2 were the fulfillment of Joel 2, 28-30. Because Peter saw... on that day of Pentecost all kinds of miracles occurring and this was something that was completely foreign to his experience and the experience of the church and it's not something he had even seen during the time Christ was here on the earth he had seen some incredible incredible miracles performed by Christ but they were by Christ they weren't by just average people and men who were just now entering the ministry in that sense Uh, at least fully, having been trained. Now they were turned loose to go out and do a work. But here were people speaking in tongues, and the shadow of Peter and John shortly thereafter passing over people, healing them. And uh, a lot of these things were happening just with common people. And that is exactly what we read out back here in Joel. Again, showing that Joel is an end-time prophecy, as are all these books of the Minor Prophets. But uh, here's the original quote that Peter referred to, Joel 2.28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. Peter obviously thought the day of the Lord had come, and he applied what was happening there back to Joel 2. But we can understand now and see very clearly that that was not the day of the Lord, and there was still approximately 2,000 years of man's experience ahead of them at that point, even though Peter thought Christ was coming back right away. So it was only natural that he concluded that was talking about Joel 2. Was Peter a false prophet because he didn't understand? No. I think that what happened there in Acts 2 was simply a minor fulfillment of Joel 2, and therefore Peter could make that application. But it wasn't the final fulfillment. Just as uh, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but I think we're going to see before we're done that what, the, what is done at the end is going to be on a far greater scale than what happened with the original Elijah and the things he did in his human life. And the same is true of what happened in Acts 2. Uh, Joel 2 is going to be a much, much broader, greater, more dramatic fulfillment than what they saw in Acts 2 because we're talking about the end-time climax of all the ages and the return of Jesus Christ in glory and in a judgment. And therefore, this is going to be a much, much bigger event. Uh, Another example, again, from the life of Elijah, used by Paul for his time. See, Paul also thought he was right at the end of the age. 
Christ did not give him information or an insight into how much time was left. And remember that Paul was struck down on the road to Damascus. He went into the desert and was trained by Jesus Christ for three and one half years. Uh, But Christ didn't tell him even then that he wasn't coming back in his lifetime. I'm sure that Paul must have asked about it in three and a half years with Christ, the same amount he had spent with the other apostles. That had to have been very, very much on his mind, or maybe he just assumed it and never even asked the question. But if he did ask the question, I'm sure he was turned aside uh, with the answer, just as Christ did with the disciples when he told them it's not given to know the day or the hour. But nonetheless... Paul thought that Christ was coming back in his time. Now, was Paul a false prophet? Because he said uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, about 51 or 52, and we shall be changed, thinking that he would live and be changed at the return of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Paul said, then we which are alive and remain, including himself in that, So he thought he would live to see the return of Jesus Christ. He did not know at that time that he was going to die, uh, as the other apostles did, with the exception of John. Now let's see what Paul said here in Romans uh, 11. He was thinking that he was going to live to see all this, and in Romans 11, uh, let's begin in verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Know you not what the scripture says of Elijah, how he makes intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and digged down your altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. At that point, Elijah thought he was the only one on earth who was obeying God, And he was all alone, and they were after him. Jezebel wanted to see him dead. But what says the answer of God to him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. So there were 7,000 people there that uh, Elijah had no inkling were there. So how does Paul apply this then in verse 5? Even so then, at this present time, Also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So Paul took that example of Elijah from the Old Testament and applied it to his day, his ministry, the people that he was speaking to, and said that that applies now. Now, if it applied to Elijah in the Old Testament, if it applied to Paul in the day that he was speaking, and I don't know how many people there were in the early New Testament church, but there were 3,000, 5,000 converted, and a great influx of people at the beginning, but then that tailed off very rapidly, and they had small congregations all over the Mediterranean, here and there, but uh, how many people were actually involved? Uh, We have no real knowledge, I guess, but it doesn't sound like, as you read through the Gospels and through the writings of Paul, that there were great, great numbers of people in the church. They met in houses, for instance. And when you meet in houses, you don't have hundreds and thousands of people. They had very, very small houses back then, by the way. 
So can we say God will not save a people for himself in this age also now? He promises us he will gather a remnant from this present scattering at the end as well. And that is in the book of Haggai, where he says he is going to gather together a remnant of the church, because most have not been faithful, and God will gather to the two witnesses, as we've seen as we went through Haggai and Zechariah, a remnant of this church that is being destroyed today, the, the whole church of God as we have known it. Now, some have conjectured that Elijah himself will be resurrected to do this job at the end. This is not a new idea. Be turning to Luke 9, Luke 9, and we'll see that uh, this idea that people have come up with recently, some have thought Herbert Armstrong was going to be resurrected to do the job. Uh, others think that Elijah himself will be resurrected to do the job. But let's notice it in Luke 9 and verse 7. Luke 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, speaking of John the Baptist, and he was perplexed, because it was said of some that John was risen from the dead, and of some that Elijah had appeared, that Elijah had been resurrected, and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again. It's not talking about coming down from heaven, as the Protestants might say, but of a resurrection. So you see, this idea that the original Elijah might come back here at the end, uh, based on the wording of Malachi 4, 4 through 6 there, where it says, I will send Elijah the prophet, um, this, this idea is not new. And Herod said, John, have I beheaded? But who is this, of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. Um, see, there's another verse here I wanted to cover as well. Uh, verse 19. Then they answering said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. So, it wasn't true, was it? Elijah was still in his grave, all the other prophets were still in their graves, but John the Baptist was there, and Christ clearly stated that he was that Elijah that came to prepare the way for him at his first coming. So there was never any intention by God to resurrect the original Elijah, and I would think that, that would be true as well <coughs> here at the end, because he's sending another type. These types in the Bible happen to be over and over, uh, repeated over and over, and we're coming down now to the last fulfillment of someone coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, What's the conclusion to all this? It's simply this. There has to be an end-time Elijah who will do the same job as John the Baptist did before the first coming of Christ, i.e. prepare the way for the second coming of Christ. A way needs to be prepared again. We have a godless society, just like they did in John the Baptist's day, just before Christ came the first time. And we have a drifting, scattering, Laodicean church. They didn't have a church before the return of Christ, but you had the congregation of Israel in the wilderness, Acts 7.38, which was, in that sense, a church or a gathering or a congregation or an assembly of Israel that had not been offered salvation as yet, for the most part. Uh, but now we do. We have both a physical Israel, who is almost entirely godless, and we have 
a Laodicean church which gives lip service to God but does not have the kind of relationship with Christ and with the Father that they want. Now let's go back to Malachi 4. Back to Malachi 4. And there's something that we've overlooked back here, I think, from time to time and perhaps completely glossed over in the past in looking at the Elijah. <clears throat> and that is something that I mentioned at the very beginning here in verse 4. Malachi 4 and verse 4. Remember you the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Notice that we have two people mentioned here as postscripts to the book of Malachi once the story was basically finished. This is added. At the end we are to remember the law of Moses and pay attention to Elijah the prophet. <clears throat> so both the law and the prophets are important here at the end. So God mentions both men and their function in this end time context. Now let's go back to Matthew 17. Matthew 17, because I want to uh, start drawing <coughs> some things together from all these scriptures. Now this is the story of the transfiguration. We started just afterward a few moments ago. But now let's uh, read the transfiguration and see what it's saying. And after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them up into a high mountain apart, away from all the others, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Now this is not, he did not actually appear in his glory except in vision. Remember, this is a vision. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Interesting, it would be Moses and Elijah. Why not somebody else? Then answered Peter and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you will, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So, they thought the context was of the millennium. However, there were only the three, plus these three men that were with Christ. While he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear you him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man, save Jesus only. And that was the end of the story. Well, what was this all about? What was the purpose here? Now, he had both Moses and Elijah appear. He didn't have Abraham and Isaac. He didn't have Enoch and Noah. But he had Moses and Elijah. That, I think, we're going to find is very, very important because it ties back to Malachi 4. And right at the end, we'll have Moses and Elijah as types appearing. <clears throat> now, what was the whole point, though, of this transfiguration? The message came from Jehovah. The message came from the Father. And he told the disciples... This is my son, hear you him. In other words, he transcends Moses and Elijah. He is a more 
by far important figure than Moses and Elijah were. These men had come out of a society that looked to Moses particularly and to Elijah to some degree. Uh, if you read through here, they're always saying, well, this must be Moses or this, or this must be Elijah. Uh, they gave great credence to the things of Moses in the first five books of the Bible, and any time something prophetic came up, then Elijah was on their lips, or one of the other prophets, as we already saw about John the Baptist. So the Father was showing them that they listened to Christ first, that he is higher in authority, that he was more important by far than these other two men. Now note also in Luke 16, 16, we'll be turning back there, that Christ said that the, mo that the law and the prophets were until John. Let's read that in uh, Luke 16 and verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presses into it. He says then, right after that, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. To fail. So he says the law isn't done away with, <clears throat> but he's saying that there's something more important on the scene now than just the law and the prophets. But since John the Baptist came and introduced Christ in that sense, uh, the kingdom of God is preached. Note also from Matthew 7. Let's go back there. Matthew 7. And uh, this is the toward the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount where Christ lays out for us the kind of conduct he expects of us what our goals and purposes ought to be and so on Matthew 7 uh, and let's pick it up in verse 12 therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you do you even so to them for this is the law and the prophets this is a summary of everything the law and the prophets said. The golden rule in that sense. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love them as much as you love yourself and treat them with as much care, as much kindness, as much love as you do yourself. Only say things about them you would like said about you. Only do to the things to them you would like done to you. If we could do that, Oh, how our lives would be different. But that's the goal and the purpose. So the message of the law and the prophets, represented here by the individuals, Moses and Elijah, is what? It's the same message as the kingdom of God preached by Jesus Christ. He didn't come out to do away with anything. Right here in his summary of the Sermon on the Mount, which was the New Testament Approach once the kingdom of God arrived or became possible through Jesus Christ, who is going to be the head of that kingdom. Uh, once that appeared, he said, "You're supposed to do the same thing that you learned under the under Moses, the law and the prophets. Same message, but now we have the kingdom of God offered as a part of the package. If you will do what Moses and Elijah said to do." the Law and the Prophets. So the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament, all pointed to Christ and his message. And the message is the same. 
But since John the Baptist, in terms of a kingdom to come, it was not just a physical kingdom of Israel that was there anymore, but the kingdom of God which is to come. So what Christ is saying is that which Moses taught and did and that which the prophets taught and did is important to our ultimate induction into the kingdom of God and very pertinent to the end time church which the whole book of Malachi is discussing. He's discussing primarily the ministry there and how it's abused and misused the people and why God is taking the flocks away from the shepherds. We have not lived up to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we have not lived up to what the prophets tell us. And that's why we've been examining the prophets in this series of sermons about the minor prophets, because there is a very, very pertinent message there for us, which has to do with the kingdom of God and salvation. But that message has to include Christ, because he is the key figure, not Moses and Elijah or the other prophets. <coughs> Another way of saying this is that the message of the law and the prophets is applicable to today, not to be swept aside as Old Testament stuff and uh, ancient Israel. It is pertinent today. Now, a lot of types come together in the end time. We've seen Malachi refer to the law of Moses and to Elijah, as a personage coming at the end. We've seen Christ using Moses and Elijah in tandem at the Transfiguration with a reference as they came down the mountain to an Elijah appearing at the end to prepare the way for his return even as John the Baptist had done so already. We also have end time prophecies referring to two witnesses being prominent just before the day of the Lord as well. Now we have gone through those in <clears throat> the last several sermons um, but perhaps it is good to go back and review very quickly here uh, let's go back to Zechariah 3 Zechariah 3 and here we have the story <clears throat> first of all of Joshua in chapter 3 who is the high priest. Uh, now, going even further back, in, in sense of review, to the book of Haggai, it talks about building the temple. And if that's what God wants done. Now, clearly, in the New Testament, with the kingdom of God at hand, we are the temple of God, as Paul said in many, many places. Now, we're to take care of that temple and to build it up to be a holy and righteous temple. But the church is being torn down. And Haggai shows a story of two men, Zerubbabel and Joshua, who were appointed as leaders, one the governor, the other the high priest. So we have one taking care of perhaps the administration and government overall, <clears throat> the other fulfilling the position of high priest over the ministry and the people in that sense, uh, coming together to rebuild the temple. Now it had been t torn down. And a key factor in Haggai is at the beginning of verse of chapter 2 where he talks about their old men being around who saw the temple in its first glory and would live to be able to make a comparison between it and the latter temple, the one that needed to be built. So 
this is not talking about the end time church uh, superseding the temple in the Old Testament because there aren't any men around that old. What it's talking about here, and remember the whole context of the minor prophets is just before the return of Jesus Christ. And you have two people here who are building a temple that has been torn down. So Herbert Armstrong built a temple, which we could call in that sense the former temple, and it has been torn down, and it is still being torn down, and it will continue to be torn down, because the scattering is still going on and will, I believe, intensify based on what we've just read in the end of Zechariah and in Malachi. So the temple has to be rebuilt once it's torn down, or even as it's torn down, I think we can see from the context, which we've already covered in past sermons. Uh, but this temple has to be built. The church has to be restored by Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant of people that God calls to them, as the story is very clear in Haggai. And it ends with God shaking the earth at the, book of, at the end of the book of Haggai, showing that this is the time of the end. This isn't something that is way in the past. On Zechariah, he discusses these leaders more. Chapter 3, he describes uh, a filthy man, Joshua, who is cleaned up and given clean garments, who is forgiven. Uh, just as the people have been filthy and need forgiven, so did Joshua, and to be their high priest, he has to be cleansed. Uh, he is given um, jurisdiction over the seven churches, the seven stones, as we saw in verse 9 of chapter 3 as we went through this. And then he introduces um, Zerubbabel in chapter 4, and talks about the seven lamps and the two olive trees and so on and so forth, and talks about... Uh, Zerubbabel having started the, uh, the foundation of this house and his hands will also finish it in Zechariah 4 and verse 9 then he uh, Zechariah asks who are these or, or actually the angel asks Zechariah or yeah Zechariah if he knew who these people were in verse 13 so God generated the question he had the angel ask them if they knew who these were that he was talking about here. And I said, no, my Lord, speaking, Zechariah speaking, I don't know who they are, but God is making a very specific point here by having the angel ask them the question, or Zechariah the question, instead of Zechariah coming up with the question himself. Verse 14, Then said he, These are the two anointed ones, or the sons of oil, that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now they're described as two golden pipes. They're described as two olive uh, trees in verse 11. Um, but it says, These are the sons of oil. Now there is only one other reference to this in the whole Bible. There is no other place except in Revelation 11, and verse 4, these are, speaking of the two witnesses here at the end time, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. The only two references in the Bible to two sons of oil. So, the upshot of this is that the two witnesses are going to put the church back together, or the remnant of the church. Not the whole church, but a remnant, as Haggai makes very plain. So, Herbert Armstrong could not have built 
this latter temple that Haggai is talking about because it's something that is reserved for the two men who are mentioned in Revelation 11 to do. And God makes it very clear through the angel here in Zechariah 4 that this Zerubbabel and this Joshua are the two witnesses and they are to be the ones who put the remnant church back together. So, a restoral and a restoration of the church is yet ahead of us as we sit here today in December of the year 2000. It is still to come. It's not something that's already been fulfilled. Now these two, talks about here in uh, Zechariah 4, uh, giving oil to all seven of the churches. Uh, the, the symbology is explained in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, talking about the seven churches back there. And it's the same symbology, the candlestick, the bowls, the lamps, and so on, and uh, the stones, the eyes uh, of the angels of the churches, and so on. The, the language in Revelation 1 through 3 is the same as here in Zechariah 4. So they are given jurisdiction over all seven of the churches that are existent at the end time, and those are listed in Revelation 2 through 3. Um, I would also presume from this that Matthew 25, <clears throat> where it talks about all the virgins slumbering, slumbering and sleeping, the whole church went to sleep, not just part of it, all of us did. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the virgins, when they start waking up, are told to find oil. Now, the church today, some people are beginning to wake up. Some are still snoozing on. But when some of them wake up, and perhaps when most wake up, the conditions that we see today in the church will be gone. They won't exist anymore. And the only source of oil coming from God, the only true preaching of the truth of God, is going to be coming through these two men who have been given jurisdiction over the churches. They'll be the only two ministers in that sense still viable, or their work will be. They won't be the only two, because it talks about uh, some of Joshua's associates, and the men who sit before him being men of signs and wonders in Zechariah 3, verse 8. And it mentions at least seven or eight, perhaps fifteen, depending on how it's interpreted there in Micah 4, who will be involved. So, uh, but it will be basically the work overseen by these two men, even though it will be bigger than just them. They have two major jobs. First of all, to the church, to rebuild the temple from the remnant God sends, as Rubbabel and Joshua types, and then go to the world as a witness against it, as Moses and Elijah types, which we will examine in greater detail. So, let's examine just what the Elijah type must do, since he's the one that we're talking specifically about here. And this will prove to be a key to understanding whether Herbert Armstrong fulfilled this, or if another is to come. We have already made a connection <clears throat> that this Elijah is probably one of the two witnesses, and therefore could not be Herbert Armstrong. But we need to examine what this Elijah must do in detail to see if there's any indication Herbert Armstrong might have fulfilled the job, and that the witness connection that, that I have made here would therefore be wrong. By examining
examining the job, we'll find out as we see what the job is that must be done, I think very clearly that Herbert Armstrong was not the Elijah. Now let's go back to Malachi 4 and pick it up in verse 5 and analyze a little more closely what the job is that must be done. Malachi 4 and in verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. <clears throat> and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now what does this mean? Was it fulfilled in the YOU and the YES programs and Worldwide Church of God? We talked about that I think a lot and in part those uh, programs were introduced with this scripture in mind. It's not as if we saw a need to take care of the family and then look back in alarm and amazement to see that we had accomplished what was said back here. It was done with, in that sense, not malice, but we use the terminology, with malice aforethought. In other words, we see that uh, what we thought was the final work on this earth and probably included the Elijah in the form of Herbert Armstrong needed to fulfill this scripture so we went out and started forming YOU and YES programs in order to try to fulfill it. <coughs> in other words, it was a planned, plotted uh, scheme to try to fulfill scripture on our own. But did it get the job done? In this verse, chapter verse 6, are we talking about doctrinal restoration per se here, or relationships? Well, what does it say? It appears to be essentially relationships here in verse 6. Now let's add to the picture. <clears throat> let's go back to Luke 1. Luke 1. It's talking mainly about relationships there in uh, Malachi 4. But now pick it up in Luke 1 and verse 14. Uh, well, we've, we've already read this. Uh, let's go on down verse 16. And many of the children of Israel, Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Keep that in mind for down the line here as we continue. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So he repeats what Malachi 4.6 said, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, didn't repeat the whole phrase, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Who are the just? Well, Hebrews 11 and various other places, as well as the New Testament Christians, and perhaps uh, some through the ages, who have lived and died and lived righteously. Um, there are people who have to be turned to the wisdom of those who were just in the past. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So he adds more detail here about what must be done. He'll come in the spirit of Elijah and turn the hearts and prepare a people for God. What must be restored? Not so much doctrine as conduct and relationships. That's what he's talking about here. The disobedience of the heart. And what must be done to restore it? Now, Herbert Armstrong restored much doctrine. 
at the end of his life, he said, My job is finished. Speaking of preaching the gospel to the world and restoring the doctrine and knowledge of God to a people here at the end time. He said his job was finished. But a key and critical factor in this in this is that just before he died, he said, get the church ready. His implication was that the gospel had been pre- preached, the truth had been restored, but the people were not prepared as a people for God. The church was not ready. Mr. Armstrong realized this was job one to be accomplished. That's why he told Joseph Decott Sr. and the ministry to do this. He often said, and probably any of you who have been around very long, have heard him say that only half, 50% of you, and sometimes he said only 10% of you are getting it. He kept saying in the last years of his life, before he died in 1986, that the church was off the track. He had to get back on the track. Now, he realized that his message, his calling message to the world, was done. And he was very alarmed at the condition of the church in those last years of his life. Once he got back to Pasadena and focused on the church and realized what the problems were. God did not cause him to live to do the job he saw needed to be done in the worst way. He knew his course was almost over. And his parting advice was get the church ready. Prepare the people. He even recognized that his own life was not as full of faith as it needed to be. I talked to him last on a personal basis in 1983. And as we were going into his office, he says, please excuse me for a moment, and I've used this quote before, but I think it's pertinent here. I have to go take my heart medicine. And then he got very defensive and apologetic about it. And he said, I know I should not be taking this, but I just don't have enough faith to believe that the church will not fall apart if I die. He died, and it did. He recognized And the point I want to make here is he recognized what dire straits the church was in. He realized unless somebody really took emergency measures to prepare the people and get them ready, the church could fall apart. And he did not have enough faith personally at that point in his life because he knew he was old and he knew he was beginning to daughter and he didn't have the attention span and the capacities that he had had earlier in life. He knew that if he died, the church was in jeopardy. It was just that clear to him. He knew it was in a Laodicean condition. He said he first saw Laodiceans in 1969, and it increased, and he saw that the church was in severe trouble and way off the track before he even died. He did not address and resolve these problems, but told his successors to do so. And they refused. And most of the ministry who left Worldwide Church of God and formed other organizations still refused to listen 
to his words of advice at the end of his life. It's almost like the Apostle John giving advice in 1 John 2, 3, or 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He was an ancient apostle, and there had been a great turning away, and he had been persecuted, and the church was completely off the track, and he gave some closing advice to us in 1st John, 2nd, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, just as Herbert Armstrong did at the end of his life. So Herbert Armstrong recognized that the job that he had been given to do had been accomplished, but the church wasn't ready. I think it's important that we understand that. And it wasn't a doctrinal problem in his mind at that time that was the real problem. It was conduct and practice. It was disobedience. It was lackadaisical, Laodicean approaches. The relationship with God and each other. That was his concern. Now we read in Malachi 4.6 about restoring relationships and here in Luke 1 about preparing a people or making ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the Elijah must do what Herbert Armstrong himself said he had not accomplished. The job was still out ahead. What we have witnessed happen to the church is proof positive that a people had not and have not been prepared. Our relationship with God was not right, it was laid a sin, and we have been spewed out of his mouth. We are not prepared and ready as we stand today. Now let's go on to verse 76. Here Zechariah is talking. He's just been talking about Christ. Now he's talking about his son John. And you, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for you shall go before the face of the Lord, before Christ shows his face, in other words, to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Much has to be preached about the sins of the people and the knowledge of salvation and what it is that we must do in order to attain salvation through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us. So Christ would come, and he is the one that can turn the sin away, remove it from us through his blood, through his mercy, and through his forgiveness. Now continuing with John's job in verse 79, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Does the church today sit in darkness and in the shadow of death? You bet it does. Everyone claims to be Philadelphian and everyone else lay it a sin, it seems. But we are in danger of losing our salvation. And that's what it says in Revelation 3 about the Laodicean church. But if we don't repent, we will be cast aside. But if we do repent, we can still have salvation. So we sit in darkness, thinking we're sitting in the light. We think we're rich and increased in goods and spiritually okay. But we're sitting in the shadow of death in this end-time Laodicean era. And to guide our feet into the way of peace. Haggai 2.9, I believe it's verse 9, says that in this place, speaking of the temple, that the two witnesses will build, in this place will I bring peace. So we see yet another connection here between the two witnesses, not just as types of Zerubbabel and Joshua, but also doing the same functions as John the Baptist, 
who is a type, in that sense, of the Elijah to come to prepare for Christ's second coming. So these are the things that must be done, and they must be done in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now for years I wondered just what Malachi 4.6 must mean. We assumed Herbert Armstrong was Elijah. He ultimately accepted that assumption himself. He also told me personally in 1981 that he was Zerubbabel. Now this is important in that he tied the two jobs together both the work of the witnesses and the end-time Elijah. He felt he was a rebel bell building the church. He didn't realize that that church would be torn down and a remnant would be gathered by the two witnesses at the end. He just thought he was the end-time man and therefore he was a rebel bell and he also thought that he was one of the two witnesses and probably that his son was the other. He died and was not one of the two witnesses and it doesn't appear at this point that his son is either, though that might still happen. He repents. So even though he thought he was Zerubbabel, by Bible definition he was not, because Zechariah 4.14 and Revelation 11 clearly show that the two witnesses are Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now I do not believe that Mr. Armstrong, as much as I respect and admire him as my father in the faith, that he was the final fulfillment of Elijah either, though he might have been a minor type. If Herbert Armstrong was the last leader, why has not the end come? Let's read in Matthew 24, Matthew 24, verse 14, a sequence of events here. It says in verse 14 of Matthew 24, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Herbert Armstrong has been dead now, as I speak, nearly 15 years, and the end has not come. There are a lot of events here in Matthew 24 that have not as yet transpired. Um, Verse 9. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. We aren't even known of all uh, nations yet, much less hated of all peoples. And then shall many (coughs) be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. They're going to kill us. They're going to martyr. They're going to betray one another to death, it says. That hasn't happened yet. After that, it says, the gospel will be preached. There's no command here to do it. It's a passive statement of fact but it is going to be done by the two witnesses. I think we can see that in Revelation 11, that they are a witness against this whole world. It will be preached to the whole world. And when that witness is finished, or as that witness is done, then the end does come. And the flight occurs. We haven't even had the flight of the church yet. And the end certainly has not come. So Herbert Armstrong did not fulfill Matthew 24, 14. He fulfilled Matthew 28, 19 through 20, which says, Go to the world and make disciples of them all. Under Herbert Armstrong, many people were called, and out of those that were called under him now, few are being chosen. A remnant is being chosen, and they will be brought 
to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses who will restore the church, and they will have to separate the clean from the unclean, as it says there in uh, Haggai 2, to make sure that the unclean don't come, and the rebels will be purged from us, as Isaiah says. Now they deal first with the church. I don't know why over the years we overlooked this, but we thought the two witnesses just went to the world. Oh no, not at all. Uh, Let's go back to Revelation 11 just for a moment here. We've already done this in past sermons in this series, but it's good here at the end in considering the leadership that must come. Revelation 11 and verse 1, And there was given me a reed like a rod. Now John was given this because he is symbolic in that sense of the leadership of the church. He was the only living apostle left, and he was acting this out in, in vision. And there was given me a reed like a rod, The angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So the end-time leaders of the church, that John was acting out the job of, will measure the church, the temple of God, the people of God, and the altar, that is, the ministry, those that worship therein being the rest of the membership. So they are given a plumb line to measure the church. And this is shown back in uh, Zechariah 2. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. So he's telling them, as their first responsibility, and this is the chapter that introduces the two witnesses, verse 3, he's telling them, before he ever tells them to go to the world, to take care of the church. And we see a little later on in verse 4 that they are Zerubbabel and Joshua of Zechariah 3 and 4 and of the book of Haggai. So their first responsibility is to pull the remnant together and restore the church that has come apart and been spewed out of God's mouth for Laodiceanism. And I'm sure the people are going to be drawn to them by God who will stir up their spirit, as Haggai says, from all these different church organizations, how many ever hundred there are now, uh, it it won't be the organizations themselves that are drawn because it isn't going to be the bulk of the people. It's only going to be a remnant, about a tenth of them, who respond to the two witnesses. Remember what we said back there about John the Baptist and how people, Christ made the point that he he had been rejected and had ultimately been killed and people paid no attention to him? Hard as it may seem for us to understand, the two witnesses, the two leaders God sends to the church at the end time are going to be ignored and rejected by most of the church. Only a remnant will be drawn to them that God stirs the spirit up of. Those who are able to respond, who have enough of his spirit, enough oil in their lamps to respond. And their first job is to measure the church and the ministry, to work with them, and not even to deal with the Gentiles at that point in time. They are not to be preaching the gospel to the world. Later on, they do. They go against the world, as we'll see down in the rest of this chapter later on. I don't want to get into that right now. Now, did Y-O-U and Y-E-S fulfill Malachi 4.6? I do not believe so. I believe in many cases it actually caused less father-child interaction. It did more to hurt the family in some cases than it did to help it. 
It took kids away from parents on many weekends, and they traveled sometimes hundreds of miles to have sports events with other kids. And some of the YOU activities even excluded the parents. The parents were not invited and were not welcomed there, so the kids would open up more, quote-unquote. And in many cases, families could not spend the weekends together because they were on YOU trips, or they were doing YOU functions, and the parents were not there in many cases. Where are many of those kids today? Many are not even in the church. Many do not have much of a relationship with God. Some who are still sticking around the church are confused and frustrated and having difficulties and aren't really turned on people who are full of zeal and energy and drive for God and His work and His way and His church and His people. I do not believe that those activities by any means fulfilled Malachi 4 verse 6. It was a an attempt. It was perhaps a nice thought, but it was a deliberate try to fulfill those scriptures and the power of God was not behind it. And we see a church that is fragmented today and most of those young people do not have their hearts turned to God. They don't have their hearts turned to their fathers and families are fighting among themselves and the word of God is dividing people and sin is dividing people. Laodiceanism is dividing people. Herbert Armstrong's work did not accomplish what Malachi 4, 6 says and he himself recognized that. He realized the church was in this condition and he realized that it could fall apart very quickly unless someone did something about it and that's why he gave the warnings he gave at the very end of his life. He very sincerely was concerned. And the ministry did not listen to that man. Why is it that he brought us the truth? God used him to restore that truth. He used him to build the former temple. And we drifted from God. And while Herbert Armstrong was busy fulfilling that part of his commission that was outlined in Matthew 28, 19-20, he even left the church somewhat neglected. And the ministry today is so busy trying to do the work of preaching the gospel to the world that the church is still neglected. Is it any wonder that God comes down on the ministry so hard in the book of Malachi because the people still are not prepared? Therefore, there must be another Elijah. (coughs) There must be someone to come who will turn those hearts and there's different levels on which that must be done. I don't have time in this sermon to go into that. <coughs> but in the next one, I want to go back to Elijah's actual life. Because as we study his life, we're going to begin to see what must be done. And what a huge scale it must be done on that is far beyond anything that I think any of us imagined when we read this and applied it to the Worldwide Church of God back in the 60s and 70s and the YOU programs. There is much more to it than that. So we'll get into that next time, God willing.